Scripture is from Hebrews 4, 14 to 5, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to be sympathet- to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain, because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant— is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. This ends the reading of his word. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that as we have heard in this message on Hebrews, it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and separates joint from marrow. It comes into our heart, into our soul, and gives us the opportunity to see things from a new perspective, to be renewed in our hearts, and better prepared to go out and to live for you in this weary, broken world. So fill us with your word this morning. Speak to us through it. Encourage us and empower us to prepare to be living out this message for you in the lives of those we live among We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I believe it happens to all of us sooner or later. We hit what I will call a wall in our journey of faith. It's a time when it feels like our faith just doesn't appear to be working for one reason or another. At walls, we end up questioning ourselves, perhaps questioning God or the church, 
But the very foundation of our faith can start to feel shaky in times like this. We don't know exactly where God is, what he is doing, what he is up to, where he is leading. And we can find ourselves in an experience like St. John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul. If you've had that type of experience, know that you are not alone. In fact, I believe that every Christian eventually hits a wall at one time or another. At the time, of course, that wall or that seeming barrier of faith feels detrimental. It feels like an impediment. But at the same time, we can know that walls are actually those opportunities God uses to transform us from the inside out. You see, it is in such times that we start to look outside of ourselves and we cry out to God for for him and his salvation. We stop looking to ourselves and our own resources. And we find in scriptures, like what we read this morning, that in Jesus we find a present Savior, one who is tempted in every way that we are but was without sin who cried out to God for salvation as well in places like the Garden of Gethsemane and who was heard by God as he was dying his death on the cross and crying out, my God, my God, why would you forsake me? We find that prayer ultimately answered when three days later he was raised from the dead and in the process we find that he becomes the source of our salvation. One of the major insights from the letter to the Hebrews is this, that Jesus is our great high priest, that when we think about the wall of all walls, the barrier between us and God, we see that in Jesus as our great high priest, he overcame it. The author proceeds to reinforce his exhortation to enter into God's rest that we heard last week by telling us that Jesus, by becoming our great high priest, becoming one with the people and living for them and making a perfect sacrifice for them, has overcome that ultimate wall. The barrier between us and God has been overcome. Jesus The one and only Son of God traveled down from the heavenly throne of God, down into the earthly realm, moved through history, becoming a full participant in human experience, and swept triumphantly back up into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God. Amen? In this way, Jesus has fulfilled the ancient promises of God that he would send a great high priest, Not one who would go in and do what was necessary to uh, atone for our sin, overcome or cover over our sin once a year and something that just needed to be repeated and repeated and repeated, but one who would come and accomplish what was necessary for our forgiveness for all time. He would do in perpetuity and perfectly what the regular priesthood symbolized but could only do in part and imperfectly. You see, throughout his life on earth, Jesus himself suffered and was tempted. And because of the personal experience he had, he can now assist those of us who are being tempted. And he provides mercy and grace as we need it because he suffered in every way we do and was tempted in every way we are, but he was without sin. 
in Jesus, we are told in the passage right away in verse 14 of chapter 4, three things. We have a great high priest, one who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. The work of Jesus has already been portrayed as triumphant and victorious and this amazing achievement. But here, three primary ideas are compressed into a rich Christian confession in this one verse. That we have a great high priest. That what human priests symbolized and enacted uh, in an initial way or for, for initial circumstances, Jesus has accomplished ultimately. You see, Jesus would accomplish the mission of the priest. It ultimately becomes finished by Christ, accepted by God and effective among men. This is why Pastor Greg or I are not priests, per se. We're pastors, shepherds and caregivers, because we now have only one priest. There's one mediator between us and God. If you blow it like I blow it at different times, and you come in and you need to confess your sins to Pastor Greg or I, know that we will do this. Or you know what we'll essentially do is come and sit beside you And invite you to pray out that prayer of confession. You see, you're not praying to us or through us. You're praying through the great high priest and mediator that you already have in heaven. Jesus himself. You see, Jesus triumphantly ascended and is now eternally glorified. This is a major theme in the book of Hebrews. The exaltation of Jesus. When we assert this great confession of faith that we have this great high priest, victorious priest in heaven, what we're saying is God has finished the work necessary to draw us into relationship with him. It is what Christ has done is adequate. It has the right effect. It has a a telos in the Greek, a finished nature. It was necessary then for Jesus to become this great human and unique priest because now we don't need to continue to sacrifice animals or do works of service on our own to earn God's favor. Jesus has already done all that is necessary. Three things are described here in terms of how Jesus serves as a priest initially. First, Jesus is described as a great high priest. His work far surpasses the work of all his earthly priestly predecessors. Their priestly work cannot possibly compare with the range, nature, cost, and effect of Christ's work. He alone is the great high priest of God. Secondly, Jesus is here portrayed as a human priest. The one who passed through the heavens is Jesus, the son of Mary. The human name of Christ is mentioned here in this context of his victorious ascension because the writer of Hebrews wants us to know that there is a man in heaven who understands us and knows our trials because he went through them himself. Thirdly, he is without a doubt a unique priest. This is the one and only Son of God. His deity as well as his real humanity is a central theme in this letter. It warns us of of the danger of denying Christ as fully man and fully God and rejoices throughout in the inspiring assurance which comes through our affirming it. 
The greatness of this high priest who surpasses all the others is indicated by asserting that he passed through the heavens. You see, this wasn't a priest who passed from the view of those outside of the temple and went into the Holy of Holies and then only once a year and then came out, an act that had to be done again the next year. This is one who passed from earth to heaven. He overcame the ultimate barrier between us and God. Recall that at Christ's death, one of the things that occurred from a dramatic, divine, uh, empowered way was that the temple curtain was torn in two. What that symbolized was that as a result of Christ's sacrifice, atoning for our sins, the barrier between us and God is eternally overcome. Jesus didn't just pass through into the holy of holies in the temple. He passed through from earth to heaven and is even now seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us. Friends, you have a great high priest in the heavens, one you can come to and come before again and again. He was sacrificed once and for all. He has overcome the power of sin, death, and the devil and is sitting right hand, right now at the right hand of God. The mission of the priests on earth was accomplished in Jesus. It never again needs to be done. Jesus has done that for us. Passing through the veil, not in the tabernacle or the temple, but the veil between us and God, between earth and heaven. N.T. Wright says it this way. The point is that Jesus, having died and been raised from the dead, was then exalted in the ascension through all the different layers of heaven, right to the very heart, to the throne of the Father himself. He went right to his Father's inner courtroom in order that by representing us there, by interceding for us with the Father, he might continue to implement the work that he has accomplished on earth. The, comp- the competence of Jesus as our great high priest, mediator, and redeemer is assured by the fact that he is both Jesus, the son of Mary, and also the son of God, the incarnate son. He is both truly man and truly God, and therefore is able to bridge the gulf between sinful man and our holy creator. We're given an amazing invitation then at the end of verse 14. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. This is an invitation to embody the beliefs that we might affirm with our mouths or believe in our heads. It is an affirmation that encourages us to not only profess our belief in Christ, but live out that belief instead of sliding away. You see, we have an opportunity to hold firmly to our foundation, to know that we can rest assured in our confession of faith in Jesus because it is true and because he is living and active and at work in our lives. The writer of Hebrews, like us today, might be prone to wander, might be prone to become discouraged in their faith. They, they may have hit a wall, as I started with this morning, and wonder where God is and what he is up to. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, hold on. And hold fast to your belief because it is true. Jesus has overcome the grave 
And he is your great high priest in heaven even now. He's gone through the heavens. And the Son of God, reunited with the Father, is constantly speaking about you. Constantly speaking to the Father on your behalf. Last night, I had the privilege of uh, watching not only my two boys, uh, but my niece and nephew as well. So it was one on four uh, last night, Mike and four kids. And I had about three hours so we played street hockey, we played Jenga, you know, we watched a show. I, I did everything I could to try to keep them occupied. But about 8.45, just before Daryl and April were getting back to our place from their Valentine's date, it was starting to go awry. And what I found was one out time after another, each kid was coming into the room to tell me about what all the other three were doing wrong. But I noticed this about my dear niece, Evie. One time, one of the kids, I won't tell you which one, came in to tell on the other three. But Evie actually came in and defended the one being told on. It wasn't actually that one who did it. It was the other one. And then she actually started speaking on behalf of all three others. And even started saying, Uncle, don't you think we've been pretty good tonight? You know, I think we've done pretty well. I mean, it doesn't often go this well. And she actually interceded, spoke on behalf of her brother and her two cousins. The night ended well, but I noticed that that quality that she interceded for them. Well, on an eternal scale, much greater than an experience like that that we might laugh at, Jesus has gone before us. He then, we are told, is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way we are, just as we are, yet he did not sin. This is a fundamental foundation of our faith. Understanding the belief that Christ can sympathize with our weakness because he actually entered into it by taking on flesh. To sympathize means literally to feel with. And I, and I want to take it a step further. There's an empathy there. A sympathy for me is seeing somebody's experience and perspective out of your own. You're identifying with them, but you're doing it from a distance. This is how I would experience this. An empathy is an entering into, an embracing of. It's, a, it's an experiencing with based on their situation and circumstance. Trying to enter into their shoes. That's what Jesus does for us, right? Jesus has entered into humanity. He hasn't just sympathized saying, oh, darn, you know, it's, it's really tough what they're going through from heaven and just looking and kind of feeling a distant. No, Jesus comes and enters into and takes on our flesh. He's, he walks 30 years in our shoes, so to speak, and even in a more difficult and profound way we'll talk about. Jesus has, has taken on real flesh and real humanity. He doesn't merely contemplate our weakness from a safe distance. He knows what it is like, for he came where we are and underwent temptation just as we do. The writer has already pointed out all that is involved in the suffering on his part because he is able to help those who are tempted we found out in Hebrews 2.18. But now he adds that Jesus' temptations were like ours in every way. He stresses the likeness. 
Jesus experienced all the temptations common to men and women, but Jesus did not give in. He knows all the power and the force of temptation. Not only the small part, the sinners who give way know, yet instead he stood firm because he did not give in. You see, I actually think that Jesus experienced temptation and and did clearly in an even greater way than us because he didn't give in. We don't experience as much temptation when we give in readily and when our conscience becomes seared by continuing to give in to the same sins. Jesus experienced every temptation that we experience. He was tempted in every way we are. But his temptations were even more acute and profound because he didn't give in. And we know clearly that there were profound times of temptation. In the desert, before he started his mission as our Savior, Satan came and and sought to knock hard at his identity, questioning, if you are the Son of God, do this. Throw yourself down from the temple. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. But again and again, Jesus stood firm in his understanding of who he is and what his mission was. From first to last, Jesus was put to the test, whether by enticements to self-concern or popular acclaim and ambition for power. He was assailed by Satan in the wilderness. Later, we find that he faced profound temptation in the garden to draw back rather than go through the ordeal that lay before him. Or by the taunts hurled at him, even in his agony on the cross, we know that people questioned, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But as the Son of God, he stayed on the cross with us, for us. He accomplished the mission of the high priest becoming a great high priest because in in the midst of the relentless temptation he faced, he did not turn away from the shame and scandal of the cross. To have succumbed to these inducements would have been the sabotage of our salvation. If Jesus had given in to temptation and moved away from his mission, you and I would be without hope and would not have an, an intermediary, a high priest now in heaven. But because Jesus stood firm in the garden of temptation when he was most tempted to turn away from the agony that had awaited him on the cross, Jesus stood fast. He took on the pain and sorrow of the cross. He took on our sin and became sin for us in order to save us. What we find then as a result in verse 15, a second great invitation, we can then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the moment we need it. We not only hold on to our confession of faith, we embrace the invitation to approach the throne of God because the throne of judgment is now a throne of grace. God, the only one who can ultimately judge us for our sin, has chosen now to forgive us through the righteous sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. We can have confidence. To use the analogy I used a moment ago, sometimes my kids don't have confidence to approach me because they know I'm going to say no. So instead, they'll go talk to their mom. It's usually what happens. But we can have confidence that God's response to us is yes in Jesus. 
that through what Christ has done, there is a divine affirmation for us and over us, a covering over our sin and shame and guilt, a welcoming in and an acceptance as a loving father who cares for us, his kids. So Christ, we are told, as the passage goes on, was affirmed by the Father as a priest and son. Jesus didn't assert himself as a priest. He was affirmed as the great high priest by the Father, who at Jesus' baptism said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And ultimately, Jesus was affirmed as our great high priest and savior when God the Father rose him from the dead. That was his great vindication. Jesus needed God to save him in order to save us. And God the Father did that. He saved Jesus. He affirmed that Jesus was a great high priest, a righteous sacrifice for us. But I want to remind you that that doesn't mean that Jesus' life was easy or, or that the pain wasn't there. We know and trust now that we have a great high priest who knows what we go through because he went through it. During his earthly life, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Jesus had to be utterly dependent on God the Father just as we do. And he was heard, we are told, because of his reverent submission. Because of his obedience, the Father heard Jesus' cries and his prayers. And because of Jesus' obedience, we can now know and trust that God the Father hears ours. Because Jesus has paved the way for us. Although he was a son, we are told he learned obedience from what he suffered. In other words, it was reflected in the way he lived. Jesus was perfect, but that perfection played out in the way he lived his life. We are told he once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In other words, his perfection was demonstrated in his life. He, he was perfect, but it was also proved that he was perfect in the way he lived so that he became a sinless sacrifice for us. Finally, we are told that Jesus was designated by God to be a, the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What that means is he is now a priest forever. Melchizedek is an unusual character, and uh, you'll hear more about him from Pastor Greg and I because there's a couple of coming chapters that talk more about this priest who entered into the human scene with Abraham and actually blessed Abraham uh, to be a blessing to others, but appeared from God and almost like came onto the human scene and did this anointing act and then withdrew, and he's one of the most mysterious characters in all of Scripture. But the thing we can hold true through his example that Jesus ultimately fulfilled is that Jesus is a high priest forever. He not just, doesn't just do this one act and then come and go and not, doesn't do an act that needs to be repeated again and again. No, Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all. He is our high priest forever, and as a result, he is forever able to save us. His sacrifice endures in its fullness and in its perfection. There is nothing more that needs to be done. At the gathering this last week, we were talking about examples of the gospel we had seen recently. And one for me was uh, kind of simple in a way, but also profound. 
Last Sunday, I got a call from my oldest friend, and he was asking me to perform a vow renewal for he and his wife, who will celebrate their 25th wedding anniversary this summer. And while I was talking to Tom, he was asking me how my family was doing. And while I'm talking to him, Josh comes in. He's like, Dad, you need to get off the phone because I need help with physics. This does not make any sense to me. And I'm like, Josh, I got nothing for you. We didn't have physics when I was in high school. I don't know why they're having you do this as a freshman. Well, my friend Tom hears this. And he says, wait one second. He says, "Uh, Andy, his son, is going to call Josh in five minutes. Andy's in AP physics. Five minutes later, Josh is on a FaceTime call with Andy, my best friend's son. Andy hears Josh's problems, says, give me 10 minutes. He solves the problems, gets back on FaceTime and walks Josh through the problems, and he solves them. Andy solved the problems for Josh when he could not solve that problem himself. The gospel. We have a problem with sin. It's a problem that separates us from God and a problem that we will never figure out on our own. The good news is we have one who has gone before us, studied and learned all this before us, and knows what to do and can solve those problems for us and then present them to us and walk us through it. Not that we will ever earn or deserve then that solution, but he offers it out of grace and mercy because he loves us and he cares about us and he is committed to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for our sake, that we might become the righteousness of God. That as we looked at last week, God has this great plan and design for our lives, but we separate ourselves from that plan and design in our sin, and we experience brokenness as a result. But in Jesus and in the good news that he brings, Through the loud cries and tears he expressed, we have now a great high priest who entered into the darkness of our lives, who passed through heaven as a result of his death and resurrection, and he is even now at the right hand of the Father interceding for you and for me. Nothing can separate us now, friends, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus because of his perfect suffering on our behalf. He has become the source of eternal salvation for all those who accept him. The goal and invitation then in the end of this chapter and into chapter 5 is this, to grow into maturity, to celebrate the great foundation of faith we have in Christ and his sacrifice for us, but not stay in those elemental places. Part of the reason why we entered in this series and sermons on the foundation of faith is to build up on that foundation, to strengthen our foundation, but also to move from milk to solid food, as the writer expresses. And understanding Jesus as a great high priest is solid food. It's not easy to understand. But when we embrace what he has done for us and for our salvation, we have a strong foundation we can build upon. And we can grow then into maturity as a congregation as we celebrate that gift of life and as we seek to increasingly give it away to our needy and broken world. Friends, Jesus is the source of our salvation. And I pray that you have a strengthened foundation, not only as a result of this message, but as a result of this series and as a result of what God is doing directly in your own lives. Amen? Amen.